0: Scripture this morning is from the book of Amos, starting at verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When a disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness. The time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burned leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew, Locust devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of, some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the winds, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, would you?
1: God help us to hear what you have for us today. That's a it's a strong prophetic word from Amos, Lord. Thank you that you speak the truth to us. Help our hearts to grow in concern for the things that concern you. And pour out your spirit on us now and help us, Lord Jesus. We ask in your name, amen. Amen. I don't know if you listen to that uh, passage read aloud. You know, you're thinking, come on, Amos, tell us what you really think, <laughs> right? Yeah. The book of Amos is lesser known, as we've been saying throughout this series. Uh, and if, and if you might be joining us for the first time here in person or possibly online, we're in the midst of a Lenten series, a six-week series, titled Let Justice Roll Down. And it's, um, it's on the book of Amos, one of the minor prophets in the Bible, um, whose big theme is the universal justice of God. So we've been thinking about biblical justice. And just, just as a quick review for us here and for those who might be new to the series, Amos was a poor shepherd and fruit farmer from the south, from Judah. And God called him to go to the north, Israel, uh, to, to announce a message that they had been behaving unjustly and to declare God's judgment upon them. Now, Israel was in a, a time of economic boom. They were expanding. Uh, the wealthy were becoming more wealthy. And the poor were being oppressed in very obvious ways. Um, but but the, the, the nation didn't really grasp this. They didn't see how obvious this was. And their worship reflected it. Their, their religion had turned toward idolatry and kind of become kind of a state religion that kind of affirmed everything that was already going on in the country rather than and challenging it or, or speaking to it. So that's that's where we've been. And we've seen so far that justice is a primary theme in the Bible. And um, Scripture calls us as Christians, of course, to do justice. Micah 6:8. Remember, what does the Lord your God require of you but to to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. So we've been called by God through Scripture to act justly toward and for other people in the world. So it's really important for Christians to grapple with this and and to figure out exactly what that means because it is a biblical calling. Uh, An author and, and pastor I very much respect, Tim Keller, has written a little book titled Generous Justice. And if you're looking for an introduction, something to read with regard to biblical justice, I suggest you start with this book. It's very good, very easy to read. And Keller begins the book by noting that when Jesus announced his public ministry for the first time in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue, he quoted Isaiah chapter 42. Here's what Keller writes to introduce his book. Jesus identified himself as the servant of the Lord prophesied by Isaiah who would bring justice to the world. Most people know that Jesus came to bring forgiveness and grace. Less well known is the biblical teaching that a true experience of the grace of Jesus Christ inevitably motivates a man or woman to seek justice in the world. That is very true. And a big reason we're doing this series, the church should be a community of justice in the world and for the world. And today's passage shows that God's redemptive community has always been called to be a community of justice. That's the big theme right at the beginning of chapter three. Here it is again. You only, says God to Israel, you only have I chosen, or in the Hebrew, known uh, through kind of a, a, an intimate relationship. You only have I chosen, known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. What God is saying is that you of all the nations of the world, I have a covenant relationship with. I've made myself known to you and, and you know me. You know, see, when God through the prophet Amos called out Israel for its injustices, that, that calling out was based on two things, the first of which we talked about last week. And the first was this, Israel took advantage of their own people for personal gain in ways they knew to be wrong. You know, in doing so, they, they violated the general revelation available to them uh, through the law that God has written on our hearts. We talked about that last week. Our conscience guides us, and largely that law of God written on our hearts comes to us via that mechanism. So every human being everywhere is accountable to God for that basic moral code that is written on our hearts and, and programmed within us. And, and Israel was accountable for violating that, just like all of the nations surrounding Israel were accountable for violating that. But more than that, and the point of today's passage, Israel had access to special revelation. Yes, they were responsible for responding to the general revelation, just like everybody else in the world, but they had the law of Moses. They had the prophets. They had specific revelation from God about who God is and about who they are and about what, what kind of community God wanted them to be in the world. And because of that, they were held to a higher standard. It's this classic biblical theme, to whom much is given, much will be expected, Right? Uh, th- think about it. Think, think about God's initial call to Abram right at the beginning of chapter 12. And, and think about this place in the Bible too. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, uh, Bible teachers call the prehistory. You know, we can't put the, the pin on the timeline for most any of that stuff in the first 11 chapters. But starting at chapter 12, verse one, we can put the pin on the timeline for the most part. We know where Abraham lived, Abram lived. We know where, so this is when we can actually start pinning stuff to the timeline of history. And the very first message is this. God's call to Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the phrase blessed to be a blessing. And you might know that that comes directly from this uh, this chapter, these verses. So so that's much more than just an inspiring motto. Much more than just kind of a good way to to live your life or or to think about how, how you live your life. That is... The foundational calling for God's people in the world from the very beginning. God's whole plan was that He would bless a community of people so that that community could bless the world on God's behalf as a co worker with God in the world, advancing God's great plan of redemption and renewal. That's the plan. Right? That's our mission as Christians. That's our assignment. We use the blessing we've received from God to bless other people so that they might experience God's blessing through us and possibly find their way home to God because that's the point. Right? We certainly don't hoard the blessings, just keep them to ourselves. They're intended to be shared. Thus, we have an offering Right, because we all need to re- be reminded of that, to let go of the things to which we're gripping too tightly, to offer ourselves wholly to God again every day. And we certainly don't leverage the blessing we've received to keep other people down and get more for ourselves. I mean, you can see that would be exactly opposite the calling. And that was the problem in Israel. That's what they were doing. It was the problem Amos confronted. They were using the blessing of God they had received to keep others down so that they could get more for themselves. And, and it's just diametrically opposed to the calling of God's people in the world. See, they were supposed to be a community of justice, but they had become a community of self-centeredness. I mean, they, they were a community of justice gone wrong. They had a very clear mandate, very clear calling, and they were doing exactly the opposite of that. So you can see that issues of justice are baked into the foundational calling of God's people in the world, blessed to be a blessing. If we're using the blessing as leverage over, over other people, we've got it all completely backwards. So if, if Israel during the time of Amos is a biblical example of the community of justice gone wrong, we could ask, is there an example in the Bible of God's community of justice functioning properly? Is there a success story rather than just a failure story? And the answer to that is yes, and we see it in Acts chapter 6, which uh, if you're more familiar with the Bible, you know that that's the calling of the first deacons. Now, uh, this, was, this was way back, right at the early church, Acts chapter 6, not too long after Pentecost. I mean, people's faith was vibrant. There were still people in the local church who had seen Jesus with their own eyes, alive from the dead. Remember the scripture says he appeared to the 12 and then to more than 500 other people. So there were church friends back then who they knew who had seen him. And they could tell the story. And their faith was, was palpable, right? It was that kind of feeling. And so much so that that permeated the life of the whole church, so much that, according to Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were just sharing everything. If somebody needed something, they helped them. Now, And some of those in need in that day were the widows among them. So everybody in the church gave to kind of what could be called the first benevolence fund. It was called the daily distribution back then. Everybody in the church gave resources to this uh, to provide a kind of meals on wheels program for the widows of the church. Again, it was called the daily distribution. It was a great system founded on extreme generosity, emerging out of people's faith in Jesus. Uh, it based on all the, all the right theological things, recognizing the infinite value of every human being, seeing the image of God in them, want, and wanting to extend the ministry of mercy. It was based on all the stuff that we believe. It was a great system. And right in the middle of this great system, a systemic injustice was identified. Do you remember the story? Here, here it is. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the, I mean, the quick background there were two cultural groups in play, right? The Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews came from a Greek cultural background and the Hebraic Jews, of course, from a Hebrew cultural background. And they were very different cultures. Very different cultures. Kind of like never shall the two meet, except in church, right? It was, it was that kind of difference, right? And, and somehow, though the system was based on generosity and care and mercy and all of that, somehow, uh, 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 an injustice began to emerge, and now, now we don't have the backstory, but I've got to believe this wasn't an overt thing. I just have to have to assume that you know the faith was palpable. There were people in the church who had seen Jesus. They created this whole system. It was awesome, uh, you know. But I have a real t- difficult time imagining anybody was sitting around in the church that day trying to figure out how to give less to the Hellenistic widows. So I think the point for us is this. Even implicit biases of which we are unaware can lead to systemic injustice. They're not overt, intentional acts of injustice. And in fact, they can arise when people are trying to do really good stuff out of a very generous heart and a giving spirit. Everything's good. And yet some kind of systemic injustice has arisen. Now, almost every time I've heard Acts 6 preached, the focus has been on one of two things. Either the ministry of mercy and the need to care, care well for people in need, which is very true, of course we believe that as Christians, or... Uh, The success of the apostles in recognizing this job was too big for them and and, uh, adequately delegating it to other leaders and raising up other leaders to help expand the ministry of the whole church. That's a great thing too. It's the Moses and his father-in-law Jethro moment, right? Remember when Jethro looked at Moses and he was way overworked trying to do everything himself and and Jethro said, what you're doing is not good, (laughs) right? Get some other people to help. And theologically, we believe that. God gives gifts to the whole body. We should empower the whole team, get all the players on the field. We should do that. But I suggest to you that those two things, while good, are not the primary intent of this passage. See, this story is about a systemic injustice that popped up in the life of the church and what the church did about it. And we would do well to take note because what the church did about it back then was incredibly profound. Look at the names Of the first deacons again. They chose Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. I mean, at least five, some commentators suggest all seven, but at least five of those seven names are clearly Greek names. So do you see what they did? They empowered wise, spirit filled leaders from the cultural group experiencing the injustice. The early church took pains to give power to a group that was underrepresented so that all groups might be treated with equity. It's very clear in this story. You can see it. It's right there. Now, they did not delegate authority, give power to someone on the sole basis that they were underrepresented and angry, They had to be wise and spirit-filled. But with those two things to start, of course those leaders would be in the best place to see the injustice and to suggest to the church what we ought to do about it, to lead our way out of it. And to do this, the apostles and all those gathered called into being a whole new category of leaders in the church whom we now know as deacons. And if you'll note, their specific original calling was to a ministry of mercy and justice. It's right there in the scripture. They were called to be advocates for the underrepresented people within the church. In a way, this was a a kind of church internal affairs department, right? Assigned the task of ensuring the church functioned as the community of justice it was called to be. Because as Christians, we are called to be a community of justice in the world and for the world. In and for the world. And Israel during Amos' day headed exactly backwards. You know. They were they were acting on their own behalf. It was it was self centered. It you was know, God's people, they were supposed to be a community of justice, but they had become a community of self centeredness. And that's that's the last of the three categories of this sermon today, right? Self-centeredness is the beginning of injustice. This is is chapter four in Amos that we read today. Dutch poet Piet Hein wrote this. People are self-centered to a nauseous degree. They will keep on about themselves while I'm explaining me. That that deserved more of a laugh. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? Chapter four in Amos is all all about this. It's about self-centeredness and the expressions of it uh, evident in Israel. And we do well to be aware of these and to check ourselves against them because this is how injustice begins. Self-centeredness is the beginning of injustice because the root of injustice is placing self above others. So so self-centeredness is a bellwether of injustice. Whenever you see it starting to creep up, you know that not too far down the line will come injustice. Uh, So here are the ways God called out Israel for expressing self-centeredness. This is all from chapter four. And again, I'm indebted to T.J. Betts for his fantastic commentary on Amos. If you buy one book on Amos, buy T.J. Betts' commentary called Amos, An Ordinary Man Delivering an Extraordinary Message. Self centeredness expresses itself by self absorption. Uh, this is the cows of Bashan thing. Did you catch that? Have you heard that scripture read in church before? I'm just saying, if you're the guest preacher and in the course of your sermon you call all the ladies of the church cows, you might not be invited back. Uh, but that is what Amos did. Uh, and just to be clear, it wasn't the, the dig in our, in our cultural language was different from the dig that he was using. It was not about appearance or weight or anything like that. This was about uh, th- their position of, of uh, luxurious circumstance, of um, you know, sense of entitlement, attitude, behavior. Think real housewives of Israel. That, that was the dig. You real housewives of Israel... What are you doing? That's what Amos is saying. These women evidently were primarily concerned with self-indulgence and they were happy to use others to satisfy their every whim. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Self-centeredness expresses itself by self-absorption. Self-centeredness also expresses itself by self-deception. Amos calls out their worship as being based on complete self-deception. Back when the the kingdom split in two into Judah and Israel. Rehoboam became king of Judah. Jeroboam I became king of Israel. And to solidify his hold on Israel, Jeroboam I rebuilt all the idolatrous altars on the high places. And two of these were, uh, one was at Bethel, one was at Gilgal. They were, they were all over the country at that time. So, so Amos taunts them, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. You know, their so-called faith, Amos is saying, was no faith at all. They had turned the law of God into a performance-based religion that exalted the wealthy who were able to contribute more in offerings and encouraged their self-deception and injustice. It was a complete sham. And in saying this, verse, verse four there of chapter four, Amos said it point blank. Your worship is actually sin. So why don't you get on with it and do a little bit more? Self-centeredness expresses itself by self-deception. It also expresses itself by self-delusion. God lists all the ways he tried to call his people back to him in these verses 6 through 11. The Israelites were, were so resistant, so hard-hearted that they either intentionally resisted God's efforts to call them back or, or their perceptiveness was so far down the road of self-delusion that they couldn't imagine God would, anything be, would be anything but utterly pleased with them. We're not, we're not sure which, which it was, but they could very easily have been thinking, well, God's on our side, right, because he's chosen us. Well, wrong. You remember when Joshua, outside of Jericho, confronted the angel of the Lord's army? He stood there with a the sword, and Joshua's first question was, hey, are you with us, or are you with our enemies? And the angel's response was classic, right? Uh, neither. Neither. But as the commander of the Lord's army, I have come. In in modern language, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. It's not whether I'm on your side. It's whether you're with me, God says. See, self-centeredness expresses itself by self-delusion. Here's what Amos said. To the people of Israel, you were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me. A little bit like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In there, he uses this image that we're like a spider hanging by one little spider thread swinging over the fire. That's the precariousness of our situation. But for God's great mercy and grace, We would be utterly lost. Self centeredness expresses itself also by self reliance. Israel relied on themselves rather than relying on God and what God had done for them. And and this one hits really close to home because this isn't just about them back then, this is about us right now. And it has to do with our understanding of our self esteem, our self identity. See, those Amos was addressing had pinned their identity to their successfulness, they had become wealthy. Like in modern terms, we might, we might say that they got into all the right schools, they landed the great jobs, and they were living the dream. They had achieved much. And if you peeled back the layers, the heart of their identity was based on what they had achieved, how well they had done for themselves. And, and this, is, this is a temptation for us. Also, the flip side of this, actually. I hope you know it's, it's possible to be a Christian, to believe in Jesus, and to believe everything that Jesus said, but to not yet have a gospel-shaped identity. I hope you know that that's possible, and we each should examine ourselves. Because here's, here's how sometimes our identity actually works out in our minds and hearts. We, we, we believe the stuff in the Bible, But when it comes to thinking about ourselves, we're actually thinking about the things that we've accomplished or achieved, or the things that we've failed to accomplish or failed to achieve. And we end up thinking either too highly of ourselves than we ought, or not well enough of ourselves as we ought. And both of those understandings of self-identity are incredibly self-centered, because they are based entirely on self-reliance, not Christ-reliance. They're based on works-righteousness, not the gift of God's righteousness given us to given to us in Christ by God's grace through faith. And if you are not living with a gospel-shaped identity, you will actually be a detriment to the gospel ministry of your church. Whether you're thinking too lowly of yourself or too uh, highly of yourself, And the reason you'll be a detriment to the gospel ministry of the church is because ultimately, at the end of the day, all of your efforts, all of your maneuvering will somehow be positioned toward helping you feel better about yourself. Either achieve more, or maybe accomplish some stuff that you didn't. And the motive will ultimately be self-centered. A gospel-shaped identity resting solidly, not on self-reliance, but Christ-reliance. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The Israelites were just stuck in self-reliance, and that's not the gospel. So, the church is called to be a community of justice in and for the world. Let's not make the same mistake Israel did in Amos Day. Instead, let's use that Act 6 model of success as a model for our life together. And let's each and every one activate the long-range radar with regard to self-centeredness. You know, self-deception, self-delusion, self-reliance, self-absorption. Pray that up. Where are those things even starting to appear in our lives? And how, by the help of the Holy Spirit, do we fight them back? The church is called to be a community of justice in the world and for the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.